0: Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a special COVID Calls episode that is part of a longer series of the program that started March 15th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. A deep dive into exploring and reflecting the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams. I'm a historian of epidemic disease and public health at the College of Charleston. And I'm so glad to be hosting a series of episodes for this special program. You can catch most of them. I was literally, before I jumped on here, I was listening to uh, Scott's episode from uh, the past hour with regular host and founder of COVID Calls, Scott Knowles. Scott began COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse array of disaster experts on March 16th, 2020. We're doing this marathon of episodes to mark the 500th episode of COVID Calls, which is an incredible testament to this public history project, to this digital archive, which was being launched. And for the record, this is episode 492, so we are super close. I feel like you get into single digits and, and something else is going on. So today on, on COVID Calls, I want to do a deep dive into COVID metaphors, into COVID history, into COVID research networks, and to COVID emotions, a big topic with some amazing guests. And what's so what's so cool about this episode today and having these two guests on is not only are they both brilliant historians, but but they're friends. So this one's really meaningful for me uh, today as we 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 end this uh, this part of COVID calls, not ending COVID calls, but but maybe transitioning it into something new. So my first guest is Dr. Agnes Arnold Forster, who's a historian of medicine, healthcare, work, and emotions at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Her first book, *The Cancer Problem*, was published by Oxford University Press in 2021 pandemic book um, in all of its illusions. We were just talking about that before the program. Uh, it's currently on my desk. Uh, Agnes is currently a co-PI in the project Healthy Skepticism, a Welcome Trust and King's College funded multidisciplinary project about healthcare dissenters and anti-establishment voices. For several years before that, um, you may know if you're a listener of COVID Calls, she was part of the Surgery and Emotions Project, um, and a second monograph that um, she has coming out, so two pandemic book pages, which <laughs> I need to process that, um, is called Cold Hard Steel, the Surgical Stereotype Past and Present, coming out this year with Manchester University Press. Agnes, welcome back to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: My second guest is Dr. Nathan Crow, who's an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina Wilmington. He's been expert on the history of 20th century biology, Biotechnology and Biomedicine and Anglo-American Scientific Culture. His book, which is also on my desk, I, I didn't put their books on my desk today. I swear, like, I have many right now, and their two just happen to be on there. Uh, Forgotten Clones, The Birth of Cloning and the Biological Revolution, charts the emergence of cloning techniques in cancer research after World War II and the complicated matrix of cloning science and cloning publics into the 1960s. Nathan is currently working on several projects related to understanding biotechnology. So welcome to the program, Nate. It's good to be here, finally before number 500. So, so I want to start somewhere that you, that both of you will um, <clears throat> will, will be familiar with, and, and probably a lot of the listeners to COVID calls will be familiar with. I haven't heard anybody um, talk about this historical moment in in terms of COVID, and, and I just want to sort of playfully start here. So I want to start in in January of 1971 when American President Richard Nixon, in his State of the Union speech, declared a war on cancer. He implored that the time has come in America when the same kind of concentrated effort that split the atom and took man to the moon should be turned towards conquering this dread disease. He signed into law the National Cancer Center Act of 1971, which established the National Cancer Institute. But by the early 1970s, as, as both of you well know from your own work, neither war metaphors or explaining disease or for explaining disease or cancer research networks were new the rhetorical framing of nixon's 1970s war on cancer holds importance probably only in its rhetorical framing and its epistemological pushing of cancer as a metaphor for scientific work and for social ills today of course and, and I and i'm sort of thinking back to to how i teach cancer probably based on you know the research and publishing that both of you have done um in my classes cancer still carries this kaleidoscope of meanings into 2022 and and continuing through the covid-19 pandemic i was looking um actually at um the the mortality and morbidity statistics for the last couple of years at, for the us and cancer of course still is top 2 um 2019 and 2020 in the past couple years during covid historians in the broader public have grasped to find analogy for understanding COVID-19. And we've turned to past pandemics. I think there's like a history of a history waiting to be written, like a a meta history of how historians of medicine have tried to make an analogy to COVID using past pandemics. And I've been trying to think about what it means to even study that. Um, We've turned to cholera, to plague, to flu, to polio, to tuberculosis, to HIV AIDS, to Ebola. And each time I read one of these, um, these accounts by, by a colleague, um, I, I read them with interest, but then I'm also sort of lost at the end. I'm lost in the historical analogies. They keep falling short. And I, and I keep thinking, especially in the run-up to the, the 500th episode of COVID Calls, how, how to begin to historicize the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and recognizing that, that that historicizing is something that is ongoing and it has to be ongoing as the pandemic continues to unfold and morph and change. But how are we going to fit this disease into our disease histories? I think that's like as we sort of wrap up this to the 500th episode of COVID calls, I think that's f- for, for me and I think for my guests today. Um, as historians of medicine and science, that has to be at the forefront as we continue, you know, practices of, of teaching and public outreach and communicating to various publics. We have to find ways to to, to, to make sense of this. Um, so I, I've been thinking a lot about our failures, actually, as historians of medicine and public health, and, and how maybe we need to to find new metaphors, to find new analogies, to find new frameworks to understanding COVID and fitting into covid. So, you know, I think one thing we've done really really poorly is to try to box covid into past pandemics that are temporality temporally and geographically bound. So, you know, covid isn't cholera 1831. It's not influenza 1918-1919. We we like to bound those past experiences in particular ways, but but covid is proving that we can't do that to explain the right now. So that has me thinking and that's why I want to I, I bring um, Agnes and Nathan on the program today. It has me thinking a lot about cancer. And, and cancer is so fascinating because cancer and cancer history is a murky history. Um, cancer framing um, historically and today it, it has been one that hasn't been easy to categorize, has not been easy for the public to understand. Um, studying cancer, bounding cancer, appropriating cancer, cancer seems to just fall um, only to metaphor. Um, and and I wonder if there's a there's an interesting analogy there for for COVID and for understanding our assumptions we've made about COVID and then thinking about COVID history. So I want to uh, uh, that that's the sort of jumping off point for our conversation today. And I want to start with just some basic, but but some really deep deep question for for Agnes and Nathan. And and, and that is you know you both have spent a long time studying cancer. Um, and and I wonder how you've been thinking about and if. Cancer is a useful model for thinking about COVID in the history of COVID. What are the the benefits of that, and what might be some of the limitations? Agnes, I'm gonna start with you.
1: I suppose my answers are going to be a kind of collection of thoughts rather than anything really um, coherent or <laughs> you know a good sort of. I don't. I didn't have my line on this yet. I suppose is what I'm trying to say. And. Um, but obviously, you know, if you are a historian of cancer, or I mean, indeed, any kind of historian, or indeed, I suppose, a person that moves through the world in any capacity, um, you are likely familiar with the metaphors that surround cancer. And if you are a thinking person that moves through the world, you are also probably a little bit sceptical of some of those metaphors. um. And you know the the, the shortcomings of those sorts of metaphors are in some ways really obvious, right? Is that you know the the battle metaphor, the one the, the Nixon metaphor, is is, is problematic not just in a kind of national sense, but also in an interpersonal sense. You know, individuals winning or losing a battle, or conflict with a you know it, 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 essentially an agency free entity, and um, is you know is is problematic to say the least. And so to suggest that we should use cancer as a metaphor for Covid, you know, should set up a few alarm bells, right, you know, it's obviously something that is potentially fraught with, you know, the possibility of importing all of the things we don't like about cancer metaphors into Covid metaphors. Um, But then, you know, the other end of the spectrum, or at least a kind of another side to that conversation is that humans are very bad at understanding things without some sort of recourse to metaphor. And especially things like cancer, You know the kind of you see this sometimes in critiques of cancer metaphors. You're saying, well, we should be talking about it only in medical terminology, only in stripped back, emotion-free language. You know that's also in some ways an impossibility, right? All language is imbued with metaphor, and especially you know even the ostensibly value-free, emotion-free language of science and medicine is itself imbued with all of the kind of emotional baggage. You know these things are always descriptive enterprises right they're always kind of imaginative enterprises because we're talking about something that, even on a kind of very clinical level is quite hard to comprehend and the problem with cancer is that, you know, everyone knows is it's this huge baggy capacious category that collapses within it a million different types of illness you know you can have a cancer that kills someone within six months you can have a cancer that someone lives with 15 years, and there aren't that many other disease categories, I would say, that have that huge diversity. You know, you wouldn't call two diseases that are so different in experience and symptomology and outcome in treatment programs or whatever the same term. Um, And so, to make sense of that in any way, we have to use some sort of analogy, some sort of metaphor. Even the word cancer, right, is almost itself an analogy or a metaphor. Um, and I think that's one of the things. Maybe so. One, I think we should be cautious. And I also don't know how you make sense of something as big and as scary and as complex as any disease, but especially cancer, without that sort of, you know, help. That sort of linguistic, rhetorical help. Um, and I think that applies to COVID as well. I mean, there are so many obvious differences between COVID and cancer, not least in their biology, their pathology, or whatever. But in terms of their capaciousness, their emotional import and also their diversity i mean this is something i've been thinking a lot about with covid and it's one of the things that makes it a very difficult disease to talk about and to legislate about is that it does have this hugely diverse um you know two people can be infected with this essentially the same virus and have incredibly different um experiences of that virus even if they're both you know vaccinated with the same number of vaccines they've vaccinated with the same vaccine you know that they're both sort of people in their 30 you know the kind of classic easy patient right the 30 year old healthy whatever and um, they can still have very different experiences very different trajectories one could get long COVID, one could not now I had COVID over Christmas and it was it really was a bad cold and it was a pretty mild bad cold at that um, but obviously that's not the experience for everyone and so how do you make sense of something that is not just symptomology very in terms of symptomology very different but also in terms of its meaning for different people, its import, its impact, it's like kind of uh, you know the sort of emotional baggage it carries is going to be very different for different people. The only way to make sense of that maybe is through metaphor um, and that is something that it shares with with cancer. I mean the other thing I think that is perhaps you know has the kind of commonality between the two and this is, I think, increasingly part, obviously, of the COVID rhetoric, and we can talk about whether we think this is a good <laughs> transition or not, but the sort of notion of COVID becoming part of life, or becoming part of everyday life, because cancer, even though it is in some ways the, like, quintessentially, sort of the, the superlative disease, right, in some senses, right, it is the disease you do not want to get, is the disease that carries it, you know, the closest associations, I think, with a diagnosis of death, and um, you know, wrongly in, in many cases, but that doesn't really matter in in lots of these cases and you know that it's it's the bad disease and and yet there's also something that is quotidian it is you know we all will know someone who lives with dies from gets cancer and you know likely at least one of us will get it or have will have had it at some point in our lives um, maybe even two of us <laughs> all three you know the way statistics work but it's so sort of quotidian, and it's something that we do live with um, and in some ways COVID also tracks that because it is an incredibly serious illness it has killed a huge number of people but it is also something that we have had to live with even if we disagree with some of the political framing of that living with or the sort of political trajectory of some of that living with it is nonetheless something that is part of our day-to-day lives and has been now. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find it hard to remember or imagine a life before COVID. You know, my, and my life in in many ways, you know, although it has transformed in, in all sorts of ways, it has also continued in much, you know, your life continues um, under COVID in some form or another. And so that kind of living with disease as well as against disease, I think, is a big part of the COVID experience, the COVID sort of analysis, the COVID history, as it is the sort of cancer history. Yeah. don't know if any of that makes
0: any sense but yeah, yeah. Well, I know a few things and then and then I'll then I'll have Nate jump in um one is one is that I think like I'm not sure like you know we can point to 71 in in in, in this rhetorical framing of a war on cancer and and all of its problematic baggage as as a like grasping at a model of cancer research and and cancer mobility but but I don't know what the COVID metaphor is. I, I think we're still struggling with multiple metaphors for COVID. Um, and those metaphors seem to me to all be politicized. I think that that has been true of any kind of, of cultural framing of past pandemics, too, or epidemics or disease in general, including cancer. Um, I mean, there's there's obvious political reasons why Nixon in January of 1971 um, makes that statement and starts NCI. Um but but i think we we haven't coalesced into any kind of singular rhetorical framing of covid i think we're still in this sort of di- divisive moment um particularly as so many people are just calling it over as as many parts of the world are 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 putting their their preventive policies aside in schools and in other institutions um in spite of you know uh, what's happening in, in, in other parts of the world as the disease is, is yet again uh, rising. So I think we're still grasping for what 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 those metaphors are going to mean. So I want to maybe come back to that. But Nate, do you want to jump
2: in with anything Agnes has said here or or have yeah. some different thoughts on cancer as cancer? Yeah I have a couple you know a couple things that you know I think a lot of what Agnes said was really um complements and I, and made me think about a few things. Um one analogy that I kind of want to bring us back to that's similar to the the Um, war analogy, but was used really early on the pandemic is the Manhattan project analogy that was really ripe with how we're developing vaccines, right? That was all these things that immediately came out was Manhattan project style, this Manhattan project style that. So in some sense, you could think about maybe breaking up the various iterations of the kind of history of COVID into different metaphors. Maybe there's not one that really connects them all, but we certainly have had ones that try to dominate certain discourses at certain times. Um, And I, and I, you know, you don't hear a Manhattan Project style discussion about COVID anymore, right? That's not the way. And, it was, and historians have a, um, historians of the Cold War and and um really dislike the Manhattan Project, um, um whenever because it's used so often. Just like this kind of war on cancer, the same type of idea. You know, we bring industry and people together, and we all have one united effort. Um, You know, and it's a kind of a bad understanding of what happened with the Manhattan Project and also like the ideas of what the outcomes are going to be. So I think that's an interesting one that we've just kind of like used, it flared, and then it's like gone away. Um, And so now we're trying to like function with this replacement. Uh, I totally agree with this idea of the way we live with COVID and can cancer. In some sense, just like with we, we have with cancer stories, we all know people who have had it. We know, and we every time somebody gets it, we can either regale them with people who have had it badly, you know, and it's gone poorly, or ones that it was fine. They got some treatment, it was okay. Um, and so I think there's this ways in which living with it also has these parallels with um, with cancer. Both like we all, and some of us themselves have personal experiences. And so they're and it's and it's the same, just like cancer, there's a like kind of a statistical type of worldview, but there's also the personal story worldview that dominates um, um everybody's like day-to-day relationship with the disease, which I think really does in with cancer dominate how people understand it. Um and just like some families have been devastated by cancer, some families have been devastated by COVID. Um and so um and they treat it differently and and think about it differently. Uh, the You know, it's interesting about metaphors, too, is that, um, you know, I think in our classrooms, at least I do in my classroom, too, I often stand up and talk to students and be like, you know, what do we think the use of history is? Why do we study it? And they always do this, like history repeats itself. And we always, and that's like historians nowadays say, like, that's the worst thing. That's not why we study history. Yet then, when we go to publish our public history pieces, right, we immediately be like, this is just like the past. And I, you know, and here again, I think that um, as you say this the kind of metaphors don't sit well because we actually i think in some sense don't believe that these are ways in which we should understand our contemporary moment is always to apply some sort of past analysis because we kind of um really truly understand that these contexts are so um contingent and um in their time and place and so when we pull them out they it gets really muddy and no matter what we do um and any type of situation and so you know, people like to say the past rhymes, but even then it can get, you know, out of rhythm pretty quick. Um, And so I I think there is that. Um, The parallels, I think, are there's some interesting parallels with cancer research, too, that I that I've I've thought about. Um, And similar to the ways in which we sometimes really, and particularly in America, right, um, put forward a lot of Effort into essentially the basic biology, right? Um, You know, I think Robin's book here, um, Robin Schiffler's book, talking about the kind of the biomedical establishment and this kind of and the ways in which they like. Well, we're not going to worry about, in some sense, preventative stuff. We're going to worry about like understanding the basic biology here and coming up with a cure. I think that kind of has this kind of parallel a little bit to the ways in which we kind of say we're not going to worry about the public health some of the stuff so much, but we're going to focus on. You know medicines and the basic biology of it and that's how we're going to deal with it rather than you know rather than thinking about like what's in our water and what's causing cancer right um is uh what's you know getting rid of all these preventative things that can really cut down cancer research cancer instead we think about like how can we make better treatments or how can we make that's that's interesting um and the other one is that there is also you know in the long history of cancer a long kind of disinformation war right um that also plays a role here thinking about, I mean, the really good parallel here would be um, cancer and smoking and the link between that um, and, and the way in which that was fought against and pushed back against and the kind of how can you make these really strong connections in between the two and a public health establishment saying it's there and enough ways in which that is kind of um, pushed against in a various cultural um, context. And the same thing with lots of, you know, what's the rights of industry to pollute by, you know, I have a, I live on a river that's highly polluted and I have to like buy water because I, I don't want to worry about, you know, all the PFASs. But of course that we have these issues with EPA and, um, and, and, and stuff. And these are cancer and cancer carcinogens. And so I think in some sense, that's a, those are interesting parallels that I get with that along with all the ways in which Agnes kind of articulated these living with and, and, um, living within, um, this disease. And one that also, I love this discussion about, we all have these, you know, it's a minor cold for some people and it puts people in the hospital and the others and long COVID for others. It's still a disease that is, you know, un- unknown in a lot of ways, just like we don't know the mechanisms for cancer. Yeah.
0: You know, there's a continuum, right? And I'll, I'll share a, a very personal anecdotal, anecdotal story. So when our kids, um, we have two children, seven and three went back to, um, went back to school in January, like a week after um the holiday return to school um my oldest son like we got a note from his teacher saying like seven out of the 14 kids turned positive in one day and we we're like okay pull out of school and then like 24 hours later he tested positive um and he is a otherwise healthy 7 year old he's vaccinated he's boosted and he showed like no symptoms. Like I, I couldn't, we couldn't recognize any symptoms. He never complained of anything. He just kept on with his full amount of energy. Um, obviously still worried about long COVID and, and we just don't know a lot about long COVID and children. Um, the rest of my family got infected, um, in spite of very, um, serious efforts that I tried to, to keep my seven-year-old quarantined in our house away from the rest of us. But, um, uh, my partner and I both got COVID, and and our youngest son, who's three, got COVID, who's not eligible to be vaccinated. He spent three nights not able to breathe, not sleeping. I mean, we I was dreadfully afraid for his life. Um, and 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 his experience was not like the rest of ours experience, and we're in the same household, we're in the same familial unit, and that to me like. There's, there's got to be some interesting metaphors for cancer there, too, because, you know, if we think about risk and I've been thinking about risk a lot and, you know, there's a there's a huge body of research on risk. And and um, and and I think moving forward, because so many governments have given up on on preventive public health, what basically governments have told us in 2022 in many, but although not all parts of the world, certainly in America and in the UK right now, is that you're on your own. In, in, in mitigating and navigating COVID and what that's going to mean, I think there's an opportunity for public health officials not just to give up and despair because what, you know, public health officials I've been talking to and speaking with on COVID calls are like, that's not public health. Like what this we're transitioning to is literally the opposite of public health. And 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 I think there's an opportunity yet for public health officials to say, like, what we really need to be doing is ed- ed- educating everyday people on notions of risk. And and it turns out, as you both know, there's enormous amount of research and, and public health messaging for other types of diseases and risk. Think about how we talk about, you know, different types of cancers. And, and we don't do that uniformly with all types of cancers, but we do talk about the risk associated. I mean, the classic example is, is smoking and lung cancer, right? It's literally framed as, you know, the beginnings of risk factor epidemiology in the 50s. And and we we talk a lot about risk and and the development of different cancers. And I wonder if there's something there that that at least you know public health authorities, but the broader public, can start thinking about as we move into whether we like it or not a, a, a different stage of of the COVID nineteen pandemic, where um you know as you said Agnes, like living with it is something we're gonna have to do, even though that's such a politicized phrase that like it's, it it sounds like fingernails on a chalkboard to me when people say living with COVID, but it's, it's obviously true. Um, but I think that's, that, that phrase has been weaponized as a one to, to stand in to mean that COVID is serious. And I, and I, and I, and I wonder if there's analogies here to cancer, because I think, yeah, I, I hear about, and I'm sure both of you have had too, you know, experiences of friends and family and coworkers who, um, who get diagnosed with colorectal cancer or with liver cancer, and they die in three months. And, and other folks who get diagnosed with uh, very different types of cancers who get treatment and recover. And, and, and so the, the cancer, the multiplicity of cancers and risk, I think is, is an interesting way to think about long COVID and continuing to deal with COVID, because we're going to have to navigate what that risk means to us differentially in our populations.
1: I mean, I I do think there's so many things that you both said that I want to respond to, but I'll try and <laughs> keep it succinct. But I think one of the things that's always struck me about um, talking about COVID, and this is a you know familiar truism, right, is that COVID hasn't created societal or, prob- or problems in society when it comes to healthcare and medicine access and inequalities. It's just either exposed them and, and deepened them. It's deepened those sorts of pre-existing channels. And so our, like, capacity to, like, deal with, think with, cope with whatever COVID is incredibly dependent on how we have um, built ourselves up around other illnesses that we've lived with. Um, And so I think with something like risk, um, you know, there is a sophisticated literature on risk when it comes to cancer, a huge amount of research, but I'm not sure how well it has actually translated to you know, it is an incredibly difficult thing to communicate to people, um, and it is, I think, often very. There's a lot of research into, you know, how certain things can override. Um, you know, that you're just using the word cancer in a diagnosis can prompt very extreme treatment pathways that are taken on by patients because it carries with it this particular threat that sort of irrespect- sort of isn't doesn't really tally to the actual risk or the sort of actual likelihood that person is going to die very shortly or get very ill very quickly and you know it's very difficult to communicate something like you know certain i mean smoking i think has probably made it the, the sort of the best transition to the public space but you know the consumption of processed meat for example and it's very difficult to communicate what the risk of and it's also because it's quite hard to actually your know, finger on but it's very difficult to communicate the risk of something like that to eventual cancer outcome and so i think our ability to communicate risk around COVID or to understand risk around COVID. This is sort of dependent on confusions or complications or complexities that already exist in the way that we talk about medicine and healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did wanna say something else about like prevention and public health and all that kind of stuff. Cause I think that one of the other similarities that Nate was saying that reminded me of another thing that I think it's not so much a similarity between COVID and cancer, but a con- point of connection which is exactly this thing that sort of focused on the high tech of medicine and, you know, the Manhattan Project and vaccine development, you know, this huge emphasis. And this is, I mean, it's interesting you are talking about the Manhattan Project because as far as I know, that really wasn't a metaphor in the United Kingdom for sort of obvious reasons, right? Um, But that didn't mean that we didn't have our own sort of, you know, kind of very jingoistic kind of narratives around, you know, the British AstraZeneca as an example. You know, at one point our health secretary wanted to put the, Union Jack flag on every vial of AstraZeneca that was sent out. You know, it's all that kind of like bizarre sort of scientific nationalism. And, you know, this huge kind of like scientific project, this high science project, um to really the detriment of, and, you know, vaccines are great, right? We all love vaccines. Well, we all love vaccines, I assume. But, you know, that they are only one part of a, you know, a p- robust public health strategy or a robust preventative. know set up and I think one of the things that has been I'm sure this is the case in the US as well but I just know about the UK situation better and you know cancer the treatment of cancer the diagnosis of cancer has really suffered as a result of the pandemic you know that our healthcare system has really failed to keep up with some of its like basic services right and cancer is a basic service or fundamental service and and you know the things that have um, been difficult about the sort of delivery of cancer care It's not been that we've got less good science over the last two years or less good chemotherapies it's that we've got less good basic health services like primary care physicians who have time to diagnose patients or to speak to patients or we've got less good you know our administrative structures have been messed up all of that kind of low tech low tech but kind of fundamental sort of uh, administrative tissue, I suppose, or connected tissue of a healthcare system that is, you know, vital to the running of a healthcare system, and vital to keeping people healthy or, or or returning people to health, has been absolutely disrupted. And I think you can see a sort of parallel between, you know, this sort of real emphasis on 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 sort of technocratic developments or high scientific, you know, investment really is done at the detriment of, you know quarantining mask wearing the kind of nuts and bolts of public health and the nuts and bolts of cancer prevention even cancer care have really fallen by the wayside and i think that is you know a fault of governments in terms of their investment in public health but it's also you know we all bear a certain degree of culpability in our kind of you know romanticism and our, our sort of emotional investment um in you know, the promises of, of, of magic bullets and the kind of mysticism of laboratory science. Um, and I think, yeah, so that's another thing. I that, think,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, even to kind of connected to, to the kind of health policies in the United States, I mean, that, that kind of discussion about primary care physicians, you know, the CDC here in the United States tells people to kind of have risk assessment conversations with their primary care physicians. And, you know, in America, lots of people don't <laughs> um, because they don't have insurance or because um for lots you know, of ways, a primary care you know, physician. yeah there's a, like lots and lots of ways as if but that the ways in which is there's an assumption that a connective tissue is there and they rely on it yet it's not um and so and who has the best discussions about risk it's probably those types of discussions not mm-hmm. not being informed about individual risk can't be done by a talk show host right and needs to be done with somebody who knows your own personal uh, medical history and so uh, you know i think that's a really good thinking about yeah there's a risk thing but there's also there's no way to communicate that risk at an individual level in many of our healthcare systems.
0: As a reminder, you're listening to COVID calls. This is episode 492 of Restoring Memory. And My guests today are Nathan Crow and Agnes Arnold Forster. So uh, I want to I want to talk a little bit about um, this this laboratory question you bring up, Agnes, and and uh, real ways of studying laboratory biomedicine, but also some of the um, imaginaries of, of laboratory biomedicine because it's something that I've, I've been thinking a lot about um, and, and trying to understand. And and so two ways to think about this. One is that um, in our the first episode of this 500 run series, uh, I guess two days ago on March 15th, um, Christos Linteris and, uh, and Monica Green and I and Scott all chatted about origins and how to think about COVID-19 origins. And and is there a way to think about origins? And of course, we all said like there's not. And any kind of way to pinpoint origin is a really faulty kind of problematic Um, way. Um, Yes, there's a kind of biological reality that we need to understand spillover and epigenetics and we need to understand COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 in terms of its its biology and evolutionary biology. But there's also this moment, of course, where like at some point in early 2022, there's this new disease construction and it takes on new cultural meaning. And then that cultural meaning continues to change to where we are now. So origin is like a fraught way to understand this. But so that's one. Um, but the other is, I keep asking myself, and, and Scott and I were talking about this the other day, I think anyone who's paying attention to COVID and who, who studies a history of, of science and medicine and, and biotech knows that, like, studying the coronavirus family is not new. Um, and, and, and there have been research teams all over the world studying coronaviruses and virology and vaccines from the 60s. And, and I want, and like, I keep asking myself, like, is that the history of COVID? Like the history of, of, of studying COVID-19 has to like, then draw a string back to the study of the family of coronaviruses and like something that, that I think is very simple. I mean, it's complicated, but, but like it, 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 in terms of like a historical exercise is something that I, that I hope somebody starts doing is just like an institutional history of, of, of COVID research. And, and and I think the other reason I wanted to have you both on here today is because cancer seems the obvious kind of metaphor, and maybe it's not just a metaphor, maybe it's just a, a historical frame of, of methodology of how to begin thinking about if we want to like destroy the origin moment of the spillover, or maybe think more deeply about the origin moment of a, of a biological spillover, human, animal, non-human, is, is thinking about these research networks going back And I I bring this up because I think there's a real institutional history that can help us understand this buildup to this, like, biotech arms race that we found ourselves in in 2020 and into 2021. But also, like, if you're following the the cultural stories, too. So here's where these, like, can mesh onto one another. If you're following the cultural origin story myths, there's still, like, huge fears about a lab leak. And and those lab leak stories, if you're following them, um, there was a WHO investigation and report on this even. And, and a lot of them, you know, link a singular lab in, in Wuhan with a singular research team. And 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 what this like trying to make sense of it to me is like there's all this popular and even and I think even in the scientific community, this like fear that that the laboratory is this space of creation and it's the space of, of danger at the same time. And it's um and it's imbued with 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 like this idea or this pedestal of of scientific modernity but then it's also imbued with this like this this occ- the scientific occult that everyday people don't really understand too and, and 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 that seems to be completely wrapped into our covid imaginings right now so i'm wondering um nathan maybe let's start with you like your your book really does chart the the institutional research networks for cancer research so how might we use that and not replicate it, because I think, like, that's, as we talked previously, that's, like, maybe not what we can best do as historians. But how can the research into cancer, which, like, as you show, studying cancer from from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, was a really complicated set of different fields having to come together, different people having to collaborate across fields and disciplines and across the world to try to make sense of of, of not just the multiple meanings of cancer, but some of the, the basic biological research of nuclear transplantation. So I'm wondering like how your research thinks fits in with studying COVID and drawing a longer line back maybe to the sixties. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does. Um, You know, and two things too, I want to kind of, kind of pop in. I think, I feel like I haven't heard much about this and maybe it's because I haven't um, seen it, but you know, I can't believe that more people haven't talked a little bit with the lab leak theory about that. The event that happened, I want to say in 2012, when remember there was a fairly large worldwide uproar when researchers I feel like in the Netherlands maybe created a flu that was airborne using um what was it um you know a certain animal a certain lab animal right and they were talking about and, and, and then there was a huge kind of question about whether or not that should be published because they didn't want people to be able to replicate it because it could lead to a pandemic and so there very much was this A lab has created a kind of very bad flu virus that could be used as a bioweapon. And then there was questions about whether or not that should be allowed to be published. And then there was lots of discussion about censorship. So these questions about modernity in labs and what they're doing in labs and creating, um, it's certainly there. And I think you could probably trace that back to anthrax and a bunch of other ways in which we think about kind of bioweapons and, and stuff. So. There's that um, kind of connected to the Wuhan thing, but um, and it's not and it's not like an ancient memory, but rather one that's something we dealt with rather recently. Uh, as far as research networks, you know, one thing that I, you know, really found interesting about my book is a, or when I was doing my research in cancer um, institutions and cancer research is a that you know you, it brings together lots of different types of people, but and often with very different goals. You know, um, the group that I was looking at. Um, We're trying to say in the 30s and um, that the best way to understand cancer was through understanding the kind of the normal process of growth. Right. Which was at that time um, considered not the way you I mean, if you're not working with humans. Right. Um, And studying, understanding how how to treat humans and how to understand cancer in humans. What are you really doing? Right. And they're like working on pea plants and pea shoots and onion and onion roots. Right. To think about how does growth work? Because it obviously there's some sort of growth gone wrong. Um, and so, and that led to lots of different types of interesting questions. Um, so, nuclear transplantation was just trying to figure out, well, what is the what is controlling development? Is the nucleus or is it the cytoplasm? Right. And out of that, you get cloning um, technologies that emerge from it. And from then, they kind of move on into their own spaces, right, and their own research net- networks develop. And the kind of connection to cancer is kind of forgotten um, and and it overlooked, and it becomes not part of the genesis of the research, but rather um, happen to be where they are. And so, um, I, I, um, but what it does remind me is that, you know, you know, lots of people may be using coronaviruses, right. in lots of different ways and not in the places we might see them. And I think that would, if I was in a, you know, talk to a graduate student who was really interested in this type of doing a research like this, I would say, don't get connected or don't get kind of, um, Don't try to look for all these people who were, you know, in the 60s and 70s being like, this is going to be a bad virus one day. Don't get kind of swept into the idea that the pandemic is the immediate outcome eventually. Right. And that we need to trace this history with the pandemic emerging with always in the hindsight, but rather try to look at it in the ways in which it might have gone in lots of different directions and people doing very different types of research. And it might not you know, elucidate this idea that it was always going to be a pandemic, right? Um, I think that's what sometimes we can get really connected when we go back to these major biotech moments that are contemporary. We go back and and draw that string straight to them um, through the labs, through the institutions, and that ends up leaving out a lot of different other ways in which it was researched and used and thought about. Um, And so that would, would be one thing that I would try to like my first thing is like, let's go back and find out where are all the places that, are, that it's sitting, right? And doing and connected to that are not people who think it's going to be a pandemic or doesn't really lead to, say, vaccines or something to that effect. Yeah. But that's like a... A, a, so a, deep, a deep
0: history instead of a linear history. Yeah,
2: it's not. I think the, when we draw these linear histories, we lose a lot of the questions that people were asking about coronavirus because you would always say like, How does coronavirus become a pandemic? Or what were people thinking about it? And you, of course, will find people who will say that, right, in grant applications and will tell, you know, and and institutions that say they want to do that. But then you're, like, probably missing all of these other type of evolutionary questions, all these other type of um, just, like, basic common cold questions, all sorts of, um, of, you know, immunology questions that people were not worried about a pandemic, right, or were not worried about these things. We're very much interested in zoology um, questions. and. and it wasn't always about spillover and pandemics, right? Lots of, you know, um, but lots of other types of questions. And if we just draw that one line, we lose all those questions um, about who's working on coronaviruses.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think like it's, I mean, like somebody needs to start applying for like five-year ERCs on this topic because <laughs> I think it, it really is is fruitful. Um, but I'm wondering, like, based on what you're saying, there's like a there's like a fulcrum here too, because in a way, like, I think if you if you look at the moment in the early months of 2020. What you see is, I think, uh, a a crashing maybe of what coronavirus, the coronavirus family had meant to both scientists, the scientific community and in popular culture. Because like before early 2020, probably very few people out of, you know, scientific networks of studying the coronavirus family could even had ever heard of that term coronavirus. Right. Um, But of course, like the majority of coronaviruses in, that that cause sickness in humans it, include like varieties of the common cold things that people have already gotten in their life and so if you think about this moment in the first few months of 2020 when there was this thing SARS-CoV-2 there were so many people um just calling it just like the common cold and 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 that's because of this Even though everyday people didn't even know what the word coronavirus meant or that some of the coronaviruses family were actually causes of the common cold. I think that somehow did translate from the scientific community very, very quickly, because I bet you could go back and find reports from March and April of 2022 where in everyday news reports describing what this New mutated virus was, they said, oh, then the family of coronaviruses, some of which caused the common cold. That can lead, as we know as historians, in really quick, indelible ways to deep cultural meaning. And I wonder if that, that's like, so in order to understand this, like, this set of origin stories over COVID 19 and our response to it, and, and honestly, like, now where we have gotten today. And might continue to go. Like part of it is like that deeper history of of coronavirus inflects how we responded to its immediacy. So that's maybe one side. The other side of the fulcrum, of course, is like is going back to the tech solution. So the emergence of 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 COVID nineteen vaccines by late two thousand twenty and into two thousand twenty one was one hundred percent because scientists had been studying coronaviruses for so long. The, the, the vaccine technology depended on studying, you know, previous strains and mutations of, of COVID-19. So there's like real scientific progress, I think, that we'll look back and see as a result of this deeper history of coronaviruses. But then also this inflection of like COVID denialism because of that very same thing. Agnes, you want to weigh in on any, any of that?
1: Yeah, loads of it, um, and <laughs> and I mean, one thing I would say quickly about um, this idea that um, certain assumptions about a disease or 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 um, aspects that are essentially true about an illness or are are true in some ways that then can be very can move with incredible speed and then become incredibly enduring in terms of like popular perceptions of an illness. I think that there's you know something in there when I have looked at the my book is about the 19th century and um cancer cancers sort of associations with or assumptions that cancer is contagious in some way and at one point in its history and it is also partly true about some cancers and at some point in its history there was a sort of concerted almost a consensus that there was a sort of potential contagious element of cancer Mm -hmm. but one of the things that I think is very telling about something like that and I suppose also very telling about metaphors and analogies is that these things can bed into people's minds and stay there for generations that people can hold on to these ideas even if they know they aren't true and you know I think that's some of the sort of really difficult things about an illness like cancer and then illness about COVID like COVID I mean I suppose any illness could have this sort of identity but that you know it doesn't need to be totally scientifically accurate for it to have purchase and for it to Sort of stay in the ether for a really long time. And um, I suppose one of the things I was uh, listening to you guys talk, I was thinking, well, I read for my sins, I don't really know why I did, did this to myself, but I read two books about COVID kind of recently. One is um, Spike by Jeremy Fowler, who runs the welcome Trust, um, and one is called Vaxes, which is about written by the um, two women who developed the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and they are really interesting books to read as a pair, and I think provide really interesting and very different models for how you might write a kind of institutional history of COVID. Because Spike is um, written by a you know, powerful player in the kind of global health you know, landscape. He's sort of very influential, he's got his, you know, fingers and loads of pies, he's very, you know, friends with all of the, you know, he's constantly name-dropping, like, big political figures, and the director of the WHO and all this kind of stuff, and it really reads like a thriller. It reads like a kind of, you know, political intrigue, you know, there's all these sort of, like, complicated power plays, and you know, the sort of Chinese reluctance to release data, you know, all of this kind of stuff. it's It's, it's it's a fascinating book. I mean, it's an interesting book. It's a readable book, but it's also just fascinating if you're interested in like how you write a kind of political history of disease, because you know it has all of the elements of a spy thriller, of a drama. Um, and then Max says so at the other end of the spectrum is a deeply quotidian tale of how is the business of science done, how is laboratory science actually carried out on a day to day basis. You know, they talk about you know their childcare demands, their you know commutes they talk about getting to the laboratory they talk about what it means to perpet something they talk about you know the all the different people involved in the process you know from the oxford professors right the way through to you know the the lab cleaners and it's a kind of deeply tech, it's sort of a social history i suppose of, of 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 lab science you know obviously we need both of those histories right we don't necessarily mean need the spy thriller style But we need those sorts of histories of institutions that both attend to the place of COVID in these big political, geopolitical conflicts and, you know, sort of cold wars of, I mean, don't want to talk about cold war right now because (laughs) it seems to be rearing its ugly head, but, you know, you, you need to see that sort of big political machinations that happened around and in and, you know, inflected the way that COVID was thought and felt about and dealt with. And then also you need that, like, how do, how do these You know, I mean, this is a sort of history that appeals to me, I suppose, just sort of personally, is that like, I'm not so interested in, you know, the technocratic achievements of of big science or biomedicine or whatever, but I am interested in how scientists do their work and think about their work and how, you know, how do you, when you talk about like, you know, something like Spillow, you know, these sorts of moments or inventions or developments or the development of a new drug or whatever, like how are they actually done and who are the people involved in making those things happen? You know, that is so interesting to me. And I think that any history of COVID is going to have to reckon with all of that and going to have to reckon, you know, properly so that we don't recreate, I suppose, you know, the mistakes of historians of science and medicine past that just talk about, you know, the big players. You know, we want to have all of that texture in there as well as all of the drama. Mm
0: hmm. Yeah, thanks for that. Um as a reminder you're listening to Covid Calls episode 492, Restoring Memory. So I want to um end with our last 10 minutes here and and ask a personal question of you both. Um and probably an unfair one, so navigate the question as you see fit. Um but I I wonder cuz I think about this a lot um is what does it mean to you? I mean you're you're you two like uh, amazing scholars who study Medicine and biotechnology and health and surgery and emotions and I mean this you study this um like i do and and what is it meant to to you to study the kind of things you study and that you're an expert on and that you continue to publish on? I mean you both have written books and published them in the pandemic. What does it mean to continue to do this kind of work given the circumstances that we faced in the last two years? Sorry. <laughs>
2: I mean, I can, since I'm unmuted already, I'll go. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I do think it only continues sometimes. My first thought is that it continues or maybe has even um, um, made the question that we've all dealt with even since graduate school, right? About like, what are we, what are we doing here sometimes? Like, what are we doing in this profession? So, and we have these conversations with, this is a great conversation, but I feel like it's, you know, it's not reaching my parents and it's not reaching my, you know, like the kind of the day-to-day people I, you know, people I play soccer with or whatever, like doesn't really, none of this reaches with them and the types of work I do is seems so sometimes hyper-focused because like Agnes, I'm really interested in how people made those things work and I wrote about them, but then yet we're here dealing with these huge problems that I feel like in some sense, like I, I feel like, you know, when I'm trying to write, when all of these big things happening, it feels so tiny. Right. And I I think that's a kind of an issue that scholars always have. But over the past two years, when it seems like we're just dealing with such global threats um, and it's such challenges to kind of living life that, um, you know, it makes it difficult. It makes it more difficult. And, you know, the sad thing is, you know, lots of plenty of scholars have been, you know, of of, I'm I'm very privileged scholar that I haven't had to deal with many of these issues until now. Right. You know, I grew up in a perfectly kind of middle class household and so i didn't you know i didn't have to worry about food insecurity as a kid so like that that challenge you know it's a different type of 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 thing and so there's just a challenge sometimes i think um getting kind of keeping on i think for me the what are my research questions and how do they matter um always is there and that way i feel like my teaching has continued to save me right um and thinking about um that keeps me going very easily because I feel like I really can make a difference there and I can bring the insights that in here, but like there are always big questions. Um, You know, I think about what Agnes just said about what the types of histories we need to tell COVID and and stuff. And it's like, well, how do I do both of that in the classroom? Because it's really difficult. Um, But yeah, I mean, this is what, for me, my first, my first thought is sometimes it's maybe even change your trajectory a little bit of like what questions I'm going to ask next in my research. Maybe they're a bit bigger. Maybe they're a little less confined to the small number of people that I or the kind of my natural segues into something that's really kind of small. Um, but, you know, that's a that's a first pass at that that difficult yeah. question.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and I wonder, you know, a few things. So so I started, you know, at the outset of this saying, like how much I think historians of medicine and public health have kind of failed to materialize and mobilize a kind of like really coherent historical framing of COVID. But I say that I'll say the other side of that. And like, in all honesty, um, those failings are like self failings of my own too. I include myself in those. Um, but also like I've, I've been, I've never been more proud of our, of, of historians in the last two years who have who've gotten out there, who have put themselves out there, who have who've actually like tried to demand that, that the history of medicine and public health and science actually has a seat at the table in policy decisions and in helping people cope and in helping people understand. And, 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 and I think, and I hope that that's, that we can have as a, as a field, more conversations about that and mobilize it in real ways to try to reestablish the values of what history is and what history can do. Because I think there's real, I mean, the, this, this 500 episodes of COVID calls, I think is an example of that too. That, I mean, I'm, I don't even know how to process, but it's reached hundreds of thousands of people every episode and, and, and spoken to hundreds of people. Um, and, and, and I, and I, and, I, and I'm, as much as I think, like, if I really try to epistemologically think about have we succeeded in any way in making sense of COVID? Probably not. Um, but have we succeeded in, in demanding that, that the history of medicine and public health and science matters now? Um, yeah, I do think we've succeeded in that in, in some really deep ways. So um, I hope that we can, you know, have more conversations and mobilize around that. Agnes, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about in, in this question, and, and maybe this is a way to focus it a little bit for you, although feel free to go enter any direction you want. It's like so much of your research in the, in the last several years has been on the history of emotions. And and I haven't heard enough, and maybe I'm sure it's out there and I'm just too overwhelmed to pay attention to everything, but where's where's been the history of, of emotions in understanding COVID and how how can the history of emotions help us right now? And how? How have you, as somebody who's been steeped into this, this field and this way of knowing the past, and clinicians and patients and practitioners and healthcare systems from the perspective of emotions, how have how have you felt continuing to study that and then using it to process this as well? Those are those are two kind of like sides of a very deep question.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um I think, I mean, I think in some ways your question that was designed to focus it has made it even more difficult, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. I think, I mean, I, I agree with you, Jacob. I think that, um, it has been incredibly in, you know, it's maybe goes to refer to it in these terms, but in some ways it's been a really positive professional experience because it has been about aligning something that I think is incredibly important with something that everyone else thinks is very important, you know, feeling a kind of a better, and and I think part of that is the sort of, I said it was quasi-political point is that I do think that one of the things that drew me to the history of medicine in the first place was it's, its sort of promise to problematize and criticize something that is otherwise too often taken for granted that medicine is seen as this sort of self-evident and uncomplicated good and a sort of a positive progressive force in the world. Um, and, you know, I like the thing I have always enjoyed about the history of medicine, the thing I think is politically important about the history of medicine that sort of challenges that assumption. And I think one of the things that's been, you know, productive about the pandemic in that regard is that I think it has exposed medicine and science to people. It has made clear these things that I think historians of medicine have been working with for a while, that, you know, that that medicine and sciences, science makes pro- make promises that they can't always keep upkeep. And that they are deeply politicized and culturally contingent and socially, you know, embedded. All these things that you know, if you're a historian of medicine, you're used to talking about. You know, I think that you can't really deny that now, if you've lived through these past two years with even a passing glimpse at the, you know, the news. And um, and so that I think is a really good thing, and I think that has equipped historians or made it easier for historians to engage in these sorts of much more, more public debates. I think as with all the other stuff I was talking about in terms of like how we deal with and communicate about disease. You know, I think the way that historians have been able to intervene in these debates is also trammelled by the way history has positioned itself in the past or how it's been sort of positioned in relation to like policy and public discourse in the past. You know, I think history has a lot of professional historians have a lot of work to do. um, thinking about how, to, you know, if you go back to what you were saying at the beginning, right, like, oh, history doesn't just repeat itself or know and I think some of that is about public perceptions about history that aren't necessarily entirely within our control but some of that I do do think we have some agency over and I think we I you know I've always felt this way and it's only been reconfirmed by the experience of the pandemic that historians should have a voice in these sorts of debates about the past not to say you know we have straightforward lessons or anything like that but you know, I think that that is, you know, I think historians need to speak to people that aren't just other historians and um, not that there's anything wrong with other historians, love other other historians, but, you know, <laughs> we need to broaden our audience a little bit. And um, I think in terms of the, like, history of emotions, I think. One of the difficult things about the history of emotions is it also does exactly the same thing that the history of medicine does or one of the good things i suppose is that it also problematizes something that we think of as universal straightforward biological inherent you know we think everybody is going to have responded to this you know situation in the same way everyone is going to have felt about something that feelings are universal in time and place that they are you know a kind of automatic evolutionary response to the settings and obviously you know, going through a kind of collective trauma, I suppose, or a collective experience maybe more accurately, um, you know, reveals to us actually even people that we think of as incredibly close to us or people who we think we maybe should share a set of an emotional responses or an emotional repertoire with or whatever, actually have felt very differently about something. And so in some ways, I think, again, the pandemic has been useful in underscoring some of the fundamental kind of theoretical claims of the history of emotions and um, and I do think that having a richer public discourse about feeling whether that's when I was last on COVID calls, I was talking about physician well-being specifically or like how health, health, healthcare professionals have emotionally dealt with the pandemic um, and I think you know that is an area that probably will have benef- will benefit ultimately from the pandemic because I do think that has ex- it's not a new problem I do think it has received greater focus and, and attention and a more critical eye as well so a more kind of critical and concerted effort to make people's feelings about work you know more productive better <laughs> nicer and that obviously applies to work of all kind you know I've just um, co-edited a volume on emotions and work and I think you know Work is obviously something that has been really taken under the microscope these last two years. Whether that's about reconsidering, you know, what your job means to you, or what you think the the purpose of your job, as we are talking about now, how it's changed the way our working lives are actually kind of function, and um, and also how it sort of blurred those boundaries between the personal and the professional, in both like physical, literal ways. You know, everyone's working from home and all that kind of stuff. Well, not everyone. A, a proportion of the population are working from home, but also in kind of more well as diffuse and, and some generalized sense. So yeah, those are my
0: thoughts. <laughs> those, are, those are, those are all really amazing. Thank you both so much. I am, uh, I'm respectful of your time and I know you both are super incredibly busy. So I just want to thank you both friends, Nathan and Agnes for, for joining me today and, and being part of these 500 episodes of the first two years of COVID calls. And, and really today was really great because it, it, it helped to crystallize for me some of these deeper reflections and and i understand like as a historian of of public health and disease that like even attempting this exercise is itself uh, kind of it's fruitful and it's fruitless because like reflecting on the pandemic today in the last 2 years doesn't make the doesn't bound the pandemic in any real way but it's an attempt to process and i think you know continuing that, that, that process, um, is a deeply important historical one. And and I think like, yes, the metaphor for cancer is a, is a fraught one, but it's one that can, that, that we can use to help us at the same time. Um, and, and I think, you know, we benefit from your work so much and, and your voices and expertise. So thank you both so much. And, uh, please join us for the remaining episodes as we get to 500. Thanks everyone.